0: Our reading for today is from Acts chapter 19. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Thank you very much, Ashley. Good to see you. Morning, Redemption. Purdue University. I don't know what that's about. Well, good morning. My name is uh, Frank, and again, I was away Um, one more time... um, and I will tell you that things are gonna settle down now for me, finally. Uh, this is the most I've ever traveled in June and even spilling over into, um, I'm sorry, July, and even spilling, even I'm confused about where I am. Um, uh, and spilling over into August, but I'm, I'm here now. I have, um, in November, I'm doing a wedding in Texas, and so I'll be gone one weekend then, and then in September, it's uh, Jackie and I are gonna be uh, celebrating our 30th wedding anniversary, and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, it, yeah. That's for her, so, um, and I'm going to be, uh, just do something special. I'm going to spirit her away for two or three days to Casa Grande, so I thought that'd be kind of cool. <laughs> just kidding. I'm sorry if you're from Casa <laughs> Like, I'm really sorry. Um, <laughs> wasn't it great to have Maria back again? Isn't this awesome? This is so good. I'm so glad they're staying connected, and I hope that continues uh, to happen. So uh, this last week, I got to do my um, annual trip to Village Creek Bible Camp in northeast Iowa. This is the 21st year that I've taught at the, one of their family camps, uh, taught seven times in five days. So there, yeah, there's the sign. So you can see how green and lush and beautiful it was. Wednesday, Friday morning when I got, went out to run, it was 48, so... <laughs> um, it was nice. I don't know if you know this, but peop- if you've ever been to Iowa, you'd know this. People in Iowa are much bigger than they are in Arizona, and here's um, an example of that. So It was, was like a little kid running around there. But um, inside the uh, activity center, which is where we hold chapels, though, there's a, I'll just give you one more picture. It's typical camp. Okay, so there you go. Everybody's dressed up. They're doing a skit. There's our son-in-law, Joey, right there, notice his hair is gone, so he cut his hair, but he's there in the suit, and then there's... Uh, the Fox and everybody. what did the fox say? I don't know. Anyway, so um, anyway, that's, that's where um, we were, or I was anyway. Jackie wasn't able to go because of work, but it was a great time. Um, Love doing that. Um, so back now. And then I uh, want to mention one other thing. Um, whenever I go away, I've got way more to say than you guys want to hear, but that's too bad. I have the mic now. So but, um, coming up, uh, we just finished the midweek Bible study on, on uh, friendship. Uh, which was terrific. And we are going to start up a new midweek study on August 23rd. That's on Wednesday nights. For six uh, Wednesday nights in a row, uh, our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, is going to be coming in, and he's going to go through the book of Ecclesiastes. So that'll be really good, starting at 6.30, ending around 7.30, 7.45. And then right after those six weeks, I'm going to do four weeks in the Song of Solomon. And uh, also right after, on Sunday mornings, right after we're done with the book of Acts, we're going to do the book of Proverbs for seven weeks. So it's going to be kind of uh, the fall of wisdom, which is a double entendre if you think about it. But it's all this wisdom literature uh, in the Old Testament. I think it'll be a great time. But mark your calendars for August 23rd. Tom's going to be here for six weeks in a row. So. Turn to Acts chapter 19, that's where we're going to be, 1921-41 today. This is uh, Paul's third missionary journey, and he's in Ephesus now. Today everything that happens is in the city of Ephesus, he was there for quite a while. Uh, It's one of Paul's favorite churches, I would say Philippi and Ephesus are his two favorite um, uh, churches. Uh, And last week was just wild and crazy. I'm telling you, it's just the way the calendar fell that Cody had to do last week's text. That was a hard text to do. Uh, there was the question of the baptism and, and all of that that surrounds that. There was the, God, the extraordinary miracles that God was doing through Paul that in many respects are different than many of the others that we've seen in the book of Acts. So um, that was interesting. The uh, the exorcisms and then the seven sons of Sceva. I just like to say that. You know, as, as Cody said last week, it's like a rock band. They sound like a rock band. And then there's this book burning. You know, they were burning the scrolls. Let me, let me give you... Uh, Chapter 19, verses 17 through 20. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, the gospel. The gospel did. And fear fell on, on upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. It was proclaimed. The gospel was proclaimed. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they, and they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. The, the, what, the most interesting thing to me about that is not just the book burning, which is, I mean, it, it reminds me of, of Footloose, the original Footloose uh, movie when they burned the books at the school. But um, somebody was actually standing there trying to figure out the value of these things. I think that's interesting. And, and that information got to Luke. And then verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. In the midst of all of this, the word of the Lord continues to increase And prevail mightily. So you hear Luke's summary there and and he continues to press into the gospel, which is the important part of all of this. But you have to know that if people are going to start burning books in a city, that there's going to be a problem. And and certainly there is a problem. Uh, In the wake of this, we have one of the most famous incidents in the book of Acts, the riot in Ephesus. And here's the big idea. It's really very simple. God is able to bring hope, peace, and change through some strange things things that we would never think that God could work through, he's he's able to do that. And as I'm going through the message today, one of the things I want you just to be thinking about is, is this. How is it that I can slow down? Life's fast and busy, isn't it? How is it that I can slow down and better see God at work, even in some really strange things? With with how fast life is going, how busy we are, I I think it's just so easy to miss the obvious ways that God is working in our life. And I know that sometimes we go back and think about it, but even in the midst of it, to be able to see that. And and we live in this world of what's called small talk or phatic communication, and I don't know if you've noticed, I'm trying to break myself of the habit of doing this, but somebody will say to you, how you doing? And you're like, I'm busy. That has become so, sort of our standard response to, hey, how are you? Busy. I'm swamped. I'm buried. Busy. And, and, and everybody's busy, right? Yeah. So what? So I, I'm trying to break myself of that habit because it also communicates, I think, to people. I think it communicates, I'm busy. Leave me alone. <laughs> I'm swamped. I'm buried. I'm busy. Okay. And, and, and it's frustrating to us. I, I think all of us know we need to slow down a little bit. Uh, been reading a lot um, uh, Thomas Friedman's book, uh, Thank You for Being Late. You can slow down by, you know, having people be late to a meeting, so you get five or ten minutes to yourself. That's one way of slowing down. Hope that people are late. It's the old George Costanza line, I don't think I ever had an appointment with somebody where I wanted the other person to show up. Amen, my brother, you know. <laughs> get some time to myself, you know. Um, but. Uh, Friedman's talking about this, uh, the the intel guy in 1965, um, Moore, and and it's now called Moore's Law, how everything is doubling faster than every year. And when you think about it, think about the exponential math there. Uh, Mark could have explained that to you, he's an engineer, but if you look at a chessboard and and every every square on the chessboard, things double, uh, Friedman's saying, we're on the back half of that chessboard now. Don't you feel like it? Don't you feel overwhelmed with the way things, it's just going so fast. Technology isn't, we don't have time anymore to take a breath after the latest update in technology. It's just on to something else. We can't even grasp it. And yet really, <laughs> we do need to figure out, at least in some areas of our lives, where we can kind of slow down and see God working. So, uh, Paul in verses... Uh, 21 and 22, you know, he he gives us that indication that he really wants to go to Rome at some point, and he's going to make his way back to Jerusalem, and he does eventually go to Rome, but he goes to Rome in chains. So, God gave him the desires of his heart; so he just the circumstances were a little bit different. Um, but but he stops in in Ephesus, and he stays there for quite some some time. As a matter of fact, he writes First and Second Corinthians while he's in Ephesus. But also, this is what happens in Ephesus, starting in verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, concerning the sect of Christianity, the Judaism sect of Christianity. So they were still looking at Christianity at that time as a sect of Judaism and not understanding it was, it was something completely different. But when you see the term the way, it means the church of Christ. Uh, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who had made silver shrines to Artemis, Artemis is a goddess, talk about her, brought no little business to the craftsmen, these he gathered together with their workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. A lot of people say, oh, here you go, it's a trade union. I, I wouldn't so much say it's a trade union as really what it develops into. It's not more it's not a union. It develops into a political action committee. That's what it develops into. It's the it's the world's first pack, okay? And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but also in almost all of Asia, this Paul, I can imagine he said it like that, this Paul, has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come to disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. A little bit of hyperbole there, but you get it. Uh, I call this paragraph the political demagoguery of Demetrius, and I'll explain that uh, later, but let's talk about Artemis, this this goddess. In in Greek mythology, those of you who studied Greek mythology, you know all about her. Um, She was uh, supposedly, uh, the daughter of Zeus, the great god Zeus, and the sister of of Apollo, the great god Apollo, um, who were often seen together, apparently. And and the funny thing about her is that she was the goddess of wild animals, the wilderness, childbirth, and virginity. That's an odd combination to be in charge. You know, your direct reports come from a lot of just various areas. That's very very strange and. And this was not a passing deal for the Ephesians and for those in this area of Asia. This was, Artemis was a big deal. 600 years earlier, be, before this riot, they had built the temple of Artemis in, in Ephesus. Six, 550 BC they, they, they built it, and it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient, ancient uh, world. And, and then this I love, I love, as I was studying this. I discovered that there's a small part of Asia, near Ephesus at this time, that was called Arcadia. And they were especially smitten with Artemis. That was their thing. Arcadia really, so if you think there's no application to us today, my brothers and sisters, (laughs) I mean, here it is. And verse 26, Demetrius says, this Paul is saying that gods made with our hands are not really gods. Now just think about that statement. And the people who are in this business are going, yeah, what's wrong with Paul? But think about it. How could something that you and I make with our hands suddenly be God? Aren't we the creators when we make something with our hands? Isn't this just thoroughly irrational and illogical? And yet their economy had been built on this for centuries. And the gospel is coming in And disrupting it and turning it upside down. We've said before, the gospel is good news, but it's disruptive. It's going to turn our lives upside down. And and when I read this, I immediately think of Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. I want to read it to you. And if you overlay Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, over this incident, you you just see the amazing similarities. Paul had to have been thinking about uh, these things. Uh, Here's here's what he writes in in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So we want to sin... And we don't want to do things God's way, and so what we're always doing is we're trying to hold down the truth, suppress the truth, keep the truth down. But you know, God is, there's no way we can hold God down. And that suppress the truth, there's a beautiful picture there, really, it's like if you've ever been in the ocean, you had a beach ball, and you tried, you know, you're always trying to put the beach ball under the water, and you can't keep it there, it always pops up. That's, that's the picture that, that Paul is, is giving us there. You can't suppress this truth, because it's all around you. Just look around. The existence of this world and the universe demands that there was a creator, and that creator is bigger than you and I. And we are not the creators, he's the creator. And he is the one that he, we, are, we are to worship. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Look around. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Look around. Can't explain it. Can't explain it. So they're without excuse. So if they're suppressing the truth, they have no excuse. When when God comes to judge them, they have no excuse. They should have known. They do know, actually. We do know that there is a God. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. This is exactly what happens in this passage with this riot. They claimed, Demetrius claims to be wise, but he's a fool. And they exchanged the glory of, of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's Demetrius' job is to make these little votives, these little um, uh, replicas of what they believe are the gods. And they honor them and worship them as gods. It's just, it's just foolishness, but their entire, their entire economy is built on it. Paul also writes, while he's in Ephesus, he writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Therefore, we know that an idol has no real existence. You create this little statue, it doesn't, it's, 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 it's perishing, it's fading away. It doesn't have any um, existential, genuine existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and earth, and indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things exist. And uh, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. See, the oldest, oldest trickery, the oldest false narrative in the history of the universe is that you can be God and that we get to create what is divine. It's the oldest story. It dates back to Genesis chapter 3. There's a a guy from India named Vishal Mangawadi who wrote a great book called There's Nothing New About the New Age, that you can be God, and he traces it right back to Genesis 3. Genesis 3 gives us the foundation for new age, and yet people today think it's, oh, it's so new and so cool, and, and there's nothing new. So Demetrius, Paul Paul was preaching strongly against idolatry and and false gods, yes, but he was doing so by preaching for Jesus. I hope you understand that. He didn't didn't come in denouncing Artemis. He came in proclaiming Jesus. But, But they got it. They understood. If Jesus is really God, we got a problem with Artemis. So they got it. They understand that. And so, in that regard, Demetrius is telling the truth about Paul. That little sliver there—that is true. But this was hurting Demetrius's business and, and the others. And so he handled this as a savvy political demagogue. What's a demagogue? Here's a demagogue: a leader who seeks support by appealing to popular desire and prejudices rather than rational argument. Some of you made that connection right away. Hey, was. It's our entire political, I'm just glad we don't have that happening to us. It's, it's, it's our entire political landscape for as long as, I've been alive 58, it's been like this for 58 years at least. And sure, this preaching is hurting his business, but what, here's what he does. He, he goes in and he uses civic pride and an assault on religion. Civic pride and an assault on religion in order to stir up the city and and get the riot started. Not rational argumentation. He's just emoting. That's it. He uses ideology and emotion to get what he wants financially. He's a demigod par excellence. And it worked. He got the people all riled up. Look what happens, 28 through 34. When they heard that they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. When they heard this, they were crying that out. So the city was filled with the confusion. It's the first time, Luke says, it's confusing. And they rushed together to the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Don't go in there. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Now, I want you to hear this, okay? Those of you that are on Twitter and know Twitter, that's Twitter's life verse right there, verse 32. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out in one voice. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. He got up to try to talk and they just absolutely shouted him down. So they're very angry. Somebody has to pay. And so Gaius and Aristarchus get dragged and beat up. Paul wants to go. He's, he's, he feels responsible for all of this because he's the one proclaiming Christ so he, and he's courageous. He's not afraid of this and he's accountable. But the Asiarchs counseled against him. Sean Mortensen, who's the pastor at, uh, at Redemption Scottsdale at the, at the um, uh, preaching collective a couple weeks ago, uh, he, he said, there is a clear correlation to today. When, when, when you're on Facebook or Twitter, I'm going to the social media again, When you're on Facebook and Twitter and you see these little things exploding everywhere and everybody's getting mad and everybody's raging at each other, listen to the little Asiarch in your mind. Don't go in there. Just be quiet. Just pull back and let it happen. Don't go in there. So what is an, by the way, what is an Asiarch? An Asiarch is an important position in the Roman government. They were in Asia, so they were called Asiarchs. Uh, They they were overseers and keepers of important pop culture and religious practices in their communities. And one of their jobs was to help the governor or the tetrarch or the city clerk uh, to keep the peace in the city, something that was very important to the central government of, of Rome, to keep the peace everywhere. Yet Paul had made gospel progress with these people who were the keeper of the pop culture and religious icons. Isn't that interesting? He'd made progress with them with the gospel. But things had gotten out of control. 29 and 32, verse 29 and 32, Luke says that there was confusion. Most of them did not know why they had come together, yet they were willing to beat Gaius and Aristarchus. They didn't know why, but they they just, so if you've ever read, read research on mob mentality, research on mob mentality shows a correlation between mobs, confusion, and a heightened desire to do something. And very often that something is violent and destructive. We're going to do something. We're going to make our mark. this it's human nature. You get swept up into that. So then they tried to push Alexander forward. Maybe he can calm the situation. Historians say that the reason the Jews pushed Alexander forward, he was part of the synagogue, was, was, was not necessarily to try to calm the crowd, but actually what they wanted him to do was to go up there and say, we don't have anything to do with Paul and his, and his sect. We're okay. We've been existing here in Ephesus for a long time with no problems, so you know we're okay. It's all them, so that later on the city of Ephesus would embrace them but not Christianity. So that's what they think. But the Ephesians don't trust the Jews at all. They don't trust them. They don't trust Christians, and the reason they don't is because they believe that they were atheists, because they only worshipped one God. The Greeks and the Macedonians, they, they, and and the, and the. And the um, Mediterranean culture, they worship many gods, the pantheon. So if you only worship one, you're actually an atheist, they thought. There was something wrong with you. And then verse 34. Again, do you think that this whole idea of shouting somebody down when they're trying to talk, you think that's new? This is 2,000 years old. What does Solomon say in Ecclesiastes? There is nothing new under the sun. We think we're so smart. There's nothing new under the sun, man. Uh, I. Howard Marshall, who is an expert on the writings of Luke, so the gospel and, and the book of Acts, he writes this. The realism of Luke's account here is striking. If in Acts Luke were merely making up propaganda for the Christian faith, as many have tried to assert, and they have, he surely would have described this scene differently. Paul would have come forward, calmed the crowd, scored an oratorical victory, and many would have come to the faith. Instead, Gaius and Aristarchus are seized and Paul is not permitted into the fray. Hardly compelling propaganda for the gospel. He told the truth. I love the way Luke writes with the contrast and the apposition and, and the irony. I love all of that. But also, he writes with reality. He tells the truth. He's not afraid. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. And he lets us know that as, as Christians, we're going to find favor. That's true. But we're also going to find Antipathy. That's just true as well. And we need to be ready for both. And one of the difficult things that we run into is that when we're expecting to find favor, that's when we find antipathy. And sometimes when we're expecting to find antipathy, that's when when God does this this amazing thing in our lives and and gives us favor. And, And remember, it's the favor of God that we're after, not the favor of man anyway. And then the last paragraph, 35 through 41 and when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who, uh, <clears throat> who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? There's a myth and a legend behind that. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him, have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls, there's judges. Let them bring charges against one another, but if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said the, these things, he dismissed the assembly. So the town clerk is like a present-day city manager, and he could act as the governor or pro-council if needed, and he does, a, he does an amazing job. It's very similar to when Gamaliel, in chapter 5, who wasn't on the side of the Christians, but went to the, uh, went to the Pharisees and said, hey, we shouldn't be uh, killing these guys. We should just let them go, because if this is really of God, you're going to be found to be against God, and if it's not of God, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fizzle out. Just let it go. It's it's kind of the same speech that he gives. The city manager, the, the, the town clerk, is not on the side of Christianity. He's just very wisely getting things calmed down by finally appealing to some level of rationality that they would listen to. He says it might be a legitimate concern, but this is not the way to handle it. And if we continue handling it this way and the Roman guard is sent in, that will not end well for anybody. They're not going to care whose side you're on. You might be executed. Rioting and sedition and these kinds of things were executable offenses in the Roman Empire at that time. So his speech was successful and it it was brilliant. So, Okay, so that's a a great story. What can we take away from this? other than the fact that we, we probably like Artemis, but we just won't admit it in church, because we're Arcadians, okay? <laughs> um, a Couple things, here's the first thing. It's that principle that God uses some really strange things to get his work done, to get his purpose, to give hope, to, to make changes. He uses some really strange things. You ever, you ever been around a riot? It's not pleasant. I know a lot of people think it's kind of cool they would love to maybe get involved someday, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, very, again, it's a very interesting enticement for human beings, um, but there is lots of confusion, you, you don't really understand what's, what exactly is going on, you may be there for one purpose, but the emotion of the crowd just, you get swept away in that, and it's easy for innocent, quote, innocent bystanders uh, to get sucked in and hurt. Um, I used to travel, in, when I was in the marketplace, I used to travel every year for at least two weeks to Seoul, South Korea, to, to do um, importing. And uh, I was there, it was probably the late 80s, and, and I was there, staying in downtown Seoul, the hotel latte, if anybody's, I don't know, anyway. Um, and, and it was a Sunday, and in, in Seoul back then, it, and things just shut down on Sunday, including the fitness room at the hotel. So I'm like, what am I going to do to work out? So I'll try and go out and run in downtown Seoul. <laughs> there's a stoplight like every five yards, you know. It was, it was really hard. But I'm out there, and I'm about three-quarters of a mile of the way into this run, stopping every 10 seconds because of a light. And, and up ahead, I see a massive crowd of thousands of people, and they're screaming and yelling, and there's police there, and, it, and, and, it, and there's this huge, thing going on, and I literally thought to myself in my ignorance, oh cool, I'm gonna go check this out. And so I ran up, and it was the strangest experience. The closer I got, the more I realized I couldn't get out. The harder it was to get out. And the only thing I can liken it to is if you've ever been on the coast, and you're out in the water, and and you feel the riptide, you feel that, and sometimes you can get actually dragged in. That's kind of what it felt like. And somehow I was able to extricate myself and get out of there. But but I felt lucky that, that I the momentum was dizzying. I mean, it was it, I was I was disoriented. It, it was an amazing thing. The next day, actually, there were snippets of it on the news, and I and it was very violent. It was a problem. I'm glad I got out. You think about this riot in Ephesus, that's what's going on here and yet even in the midst of that people saw the power of God at work. It was the result of seeing the power of God at work and they even saw the power of God at work in the midst of this. Yes, it was the city clerk who calmed things down But ultimately, by calming things down, this is what allowed the church in Ephesus to not only stay, but also grow into one of the most important New Testament churches that we have in the Bible, a church that eventually the Apostle John later on becomes the pastor of. That's an amazing thing. It could have been very easy for the church to have been driven out and shut down at this point, and yet God works through this. You never know where God is going to work and what seemingly terrible things he's going to work through. And I know that's hard when we're in the middle of something terrible, but it's also a perspective that would be helpful to keep. It reminds me a little bit of of what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, which, by the way, he'd only written a few years earlier before this. He says, Give thanks in all things. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Give thanks in all things. Uh, so Corey Tim Boom wrote this wonderful book about World War II and the concentration camps. It's called The Hiding Place. And she relates a story about the importance of being thankful in, in all things. Uh, she and her sister Betsy were being held at Ravensbrook, which is one of the, na- they were all nasty, but it was a very nasty um, concentration camp. And they lived in barracks that were plagued with lice. Just, you know, think, think bed bugs and you can never get rid of them. Okay, lice, you, and you, you just, man, they don't have any extermination there. You're just going to have to live with them. There are lice everywhere, in their hair, on their bodies, everywhere. One day, Corey's sister, Betsy, comes to her and says, "Corey, we, we, need, we need to give thanks to God for the lice. <laughs> Corey looked at her like she was crazy. Are you kidding me? I'm not, I'm not going to thank God for the lice. And Betsy said, yeah, but in the Bible, it does say that we're to give thanks in all things. I think we need to be thankful for the life. Well, then as it turns out, Corey finds this out later, that she and Betsy were teaching a Bible study in their barracks, and they're inviting other women to come into their barracks and teaching Bible study. And many women came to the gospel, came to Christ through that Bible study. God used that Bible study, and there were many, many conversions And they figured out later on that the reason that that was allowed to go on was because the Nazi guards did not want to go into the barracks because of the lice. So they wouldn't go in to break this thing up. And so they realized that it was because of the lice that many people came to Christ. So bring in the lice. No, I'm... But you see that. I mean, God is able to use anything. Here you go. Crucifixion. He used crucifixion for us. That's how we are reconciled to God, is through the cross. That's a a pretty amazing thing. If the Bible said, in some things give thanks, I could get on board with that. (laughs) Because then I can pick and choose. But it says, in all things give thanks. Here's, Here's one other thing I want us to think about. One thing it seems that we don't spend too much time talking about, certainly not enough time, uh, is that Jesus is the peacemaker, and he calls us to be peacemakers, as far as it depends on us. Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the peacemakers. Have you ever noticed that that beatitude, that blessing, comes right before the double blessing on people who are persecuted for their faith? Have you ever noticed that? And and who gave us the greatest example of being persecuted for his faith? But Jesus. He went to the cross to make peace for us with God. And yet in the midst of all of that, he's being persecuted. He's being being crucified. Now, I think all of us can admit, um, in this world that we live in, uh, we could use a lot more peace, couldn't we? Things are broken Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Relationships are bad. Some of you right now, I know, I know, because I've sat there before myself and a pastor has said something like this, and right now you're thinking about somebody that you're not in right relationship with, that you should be, and the relationship is broken, and the relationship is broken because of sin. Sin is not peaceful. Sin is not peaceful. We could use more peace. But here's the problem with us, and it's just human nature. We think that we can achieve more peace generally by making sure that we get other people to change, amen? How's that working out for us? Okay, even even psychologists will come and they'll say, it's, it's, an, it's the uh, the endeavor of a fool to spend your time trying to change others. Th- there's really only one person that you have access to their changeometer. Who's that? Yourself. Yourself. It's the only one. And I think that's why Paul says, as far as it depends on you, live in peace with other people, because you can't change other people. This is foundational. Peacemaking does not start by fixing other people, it starts with us. And I know that's hard. Because the first thing that we do is, okay, well, if I change, it's not really fair if I change and get better and the other person doesn't. That's not fair. Nobody ever said it was going to be fair. Remember the parable of the uh, 11th hour? Nobody ever said any of this was going to be fair. It's it's a non-argument. So put it back into your toolbox. Don't bring it out. And we're all called to do this because Jesus' greatest act of peacemaking was the cross. We are to crucify ourselves in that way. And it's the greatest gift that's ever been given to us. He's given us this gift. But I know it's a struggle. It's a struggle. Amen? It's hard, isn't it? You, You know what I think? Our biggest challenge in the midst of this is just simply impatience. It's just impatience. And this has to do with the pace of life again. We're just ready for things to happen right now right now. Well, I gave her a week. It just doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. We talk a lot. I've been noodling on this now for months. We talk a lot about the gospel being filled with grace and truth. Jesus is filled with grace and truth, right? Right. Grace and truth, grace and truth. Not 50-50, 100% grace, 100% truth, and we need them both. What we do a terrible job of is talking about how that only works over time. It's like grace and truth, bam, where's the change? No, that's not how it works. It's grace and truth over time. Faithful, patient, steadfast, persistent, walking with the Lord. As the Holy Spirit fills us and begins to pull things back and reveal new things to us every single day over time, the slow process of nurturing, growing, and eventually maturing. Um, I told next time I was, We're going to we I'm going to be married 30 years. And I don't, I, I please don't hear this. It's just the best example I can come up with. I'm 30 years into this marriage, and, and there has never been a time in my life When I wanted to work on my marriage more than right now. And I would say that if she wasn't here or whatever. And here you go. That's not me, you understand. That's been the power of the Holy Spirit in me. Acts, this book, this study uh, in the book of Acts has had the most profound effect on me. I've been stunned. By what I, I, I've taught the book of Acts before, I've studied the book of Acts. I read it. I love this book of Acts. I was like, eh, I know this. It's going to be easy. No, no, I, no. God has worked in a profound way to demonstrate that it really is the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's where our power is. Our power is made perfect. In our weakness, because then we rest on the power of Christ and the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's Paul's whole argument in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And so now, even after 30 years, how can I be a better husband? How can I be a better father? By the power of the Spirit, the wisdom of the gospel. Here you go. Is Acts a book about parenting and marriage? Is Acts a book about marriage? No. And yet God is using this book to work through me to try to figure these things out even more. And and it's not not big stuff. I'm telling you, it's not big stuff. It's it's the idea that there are little, tiny, itsy-bitsy little things that I've done for 30 years in our marriage that God is now pulling back that veil just a little bit more by the power and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And he's going, guess what? This thing you've been doing for 30 years that Jackie has overlooked... You shouldn't really be doing that anymore let's work on that see that's that's the that's the power of grace and truth over time. We talk about the second blessing and the and the baptism of the Holy Spirit I, I see it however you fit into that theologically, I see it as sort of a rolling, constant growing blessing as the Spirit constantly works in your life to show you a little more, show you a little more, show you a little more, show me a lot right now. Guess what? We probably can't handle it. If He showed you everything right now, boom! You would be undone. I would be undone. It's, it's this time element. And, and one of our challenges is we think of the Holy Spirit, and right away a lot of people go, Oh, the Holy Spirit, I want to feel good. I want to feel the Holy Spirit, it's all positive. That's true, but the Holy Spirit also shows you these things where, where we can get better and we can improve. And 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 at times has and confronts us painfully to be able to do that. But then it changes us. It changes us. It's time. Um you ever heard say, you know, you're about to go do something? People, I'll pray for you. God's speed. God's speed. Yes, God's speed. Okay, when we hear God's speed, the person usually means, and what we're usually accepting is, this will go fast. Okay, that's what we hear God speed. God's speed, Superman speed. You know, God's speed. Okay, now think about it. What was God's speed? Think about it. Jesus, three miles an hour. When was the last time you and I traveled at God's speed? When was the last time you and I went at God's speed? When was the last time you and I lived life at God's speed? And I know right now you're already anxious because we're over time and tomorrow's Monday and you got to go back to work and you're going to start working tonight because you want to get a jump on tomorrow. I get it. It's fast. Aren't there areas in our life where we can find that God's speed, that three miles an hour, and we can see what God's doing in our life? Can't we do that? The more time we spend in God's light and filled with the Holy Spirit, the more we're going to see our sins, and the more we're going to be given the grace to be transformed. And that is such good news. But it takes time and patience and perseverance and faith, and not knowing exactly what the results are going to be. That's what faith is, not having a guaranteed outcome. So so it's what we've said before, faithful obedience over time, but I want to just... I'm wrapping up now. Faithful obedience over time. We hear that word obedience. You know what we all immediately think of and then we never explain it in church, which is our fault. We think faithfulness to the, uh, I mean obedience to the law. Faithful obedience to the law, to the law. No. It's faithful obedience to the grace of God. It's to the grace. It's obedience to the fact that we've received the gift of Jesus' cross and resurrection and the filling of the Holy Spirit, the realization of his finished work on the cross, that he has fulfilled the law. We don't have to be obedient to law. We are just obedient to his grace in our lives. We need to be obedient to his grace. It's not buck up and just do it and try harder, but the genuine relationship of love, empathy, patience, and mercy. That's the gospel, and that's how culture gets changed. One of us, each of us, at a time, by the filling of the Holy Spirit concentrating on us. That's how the gospel changes culture. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word and its truth, and thank you for this magnificent, this magnificent and odd story in the book of Acts. And and I pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, and not by clever rhetoric or the persuasive wisdom of the world, that, that you would apply this to our hearts and our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.